0: The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off The Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, Co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, Vice President and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at Monument Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica.
1: Welcome back to Off the Wall. I'm Jessica Gibbs. And I'm Dave Armstrong. And we have a fantastic guest for everyone today. We're going to be talking about kind of what's on the horizon as far as the political and economic landscape, something I know people are always talking about in the news, but we have a real expert on today to give us some really good insight on this. His name is Bob Stein. Bob is the deputy chief economist at First Trust Advisors, where among many things, he forecasts and analyzes all major U.S. economic indicators and components of GDP, Prior to First Trust, Bob served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Macroeconomic Analysis at the Department of Treasury, and as the Chief Economist for the Senate Budget Committee. So he has unique insights into the interplay between politics and economic policy. And that's why we have Bob on the podcast today, to help us break down what's going on in the economic and political landscape. So welcome to the podcast, Bob.
2: Thank you very much, Jessica. Looking forward to it. So Bob,
3: I recently heard you at a conference. And and for people who have been to conferences, whether they're financial services conferences or any conference, you know how the first five minutes of any presentation goes, people are kind of getting their notebooks out and they're getting turning their phones off and things like that. And you're you're listening to what somebody's saying in the background, but you're multitasking for that first five minutes to kind of transition in. And But I heard you say when you first stood up at the last time I heard you speak, you said, I'm not here to say what I hope will happen. I'm here to tell you what I think will happen. That's when I put my phone in my briefcase. I stopped fussing around and I, I looked up at you and I was like, what a great intro. What a great way to introduce yourself and capture everybody's attention. So that was one of the reasons why I thought it would be great if we, if we had you on. And so I think that's a great way to start with the questions here because our listeners and we are really interested in hearing you talk about what you actually do think will happen. And you know, the tech sector has just been hammered this year, and in many cases, the big names have just lost all the returns that they have achieved during the pandemic, and, and in some cases, even more. We'd love to start by getting your take on the outlook for the tech sector and the future as it relates to mergers and acquisitions.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, David. So my theme for the Biden administration, however long it lasts, is fairly straightforward, which is that um, there's going to be a lot of barking on big tech. But not as much biting. So why all the barking, given the the low level of biting? It's that when you when you look at big tech and you look at the political donations coming from big tech, be it Facebook or I guess it's now Meta or, or Google or Microsoft or Amazon or Apple, they're overwhelmingly in the direction of the Democratic Party. A Democratic Party is not run by fools or idiots, so they are not in the end going to in any significant way bite the hand that feeds them. Now. That doesn't mean zero biting. It just means very little biting. So the area where I think the most biting will occur, and again, it's little biting, but even if there's little biting, there has to be an area where it's most. It's on mergers and acquisitions. It's going to be on antitrust enforcement. I think the Biden administration has has set out the toughest antitrust enforcement coming from the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, probably for any president since the 1970s. And in that environment, big tech is going to be caught in a larger net. That net is not designed specifically for big tech, although big tech is somewhat in the minds of officials in the Biden administration, but it is cast around the entire economy and will include big tech. So mergers and acquisition activities will be much slower during the Biden administration than it would have been had the Trump administration continued, and it will remain slower if Joe Biden stays in office past his first term than it would be if a Republican won, or perhaps even if a different Democrat won in 2024.
1: Do you see any possibility of future regulation of tech? And I'm thinking specifically about social media companies, which obviously they've been in the news a lot lately. Yeah,
2: that's a great question, Jessica. So, so my view is that there, there is substantial room for bipartisan compromise on social media regulation. And that it will occur, it might not occur this year. Although, yeah, I was very early this year, pretty optimistic that you get a that you get some bipartisan bail on social media re- regulation. It might not occur this year, but I think by the end of the Biden administration, it will occur. But my view is a little bit odd. I, I actually think the big players in social media want more regulation, and they want to see this legislation pass. and And it's counterintuitive to many people, but. The way I see it, if you're a big incumbent player in social media, there is no better way to entrench your market share to make it less vulnerable to new entrants taking your market share away than to increase regulation. It increases costs for new entrants. It's a great way to entrench your market share. So I think that's one of the reasons the legislation will occur, because you have both parties show some interest in it and the industry itself will show some interest in it as well.
3: So that, that's interesting. Quick follow-on question there. Do you, do you see the social media companies as actually going out and having their government affairs shops actually lobbying for the regulation, or do you think they just won't
2: fight it? I think it'll be more in the realm of not fighting it and not putting a lot of effort into, into fighting it off. Or perhaps putting some effort into contouring the legislation so it's most favorable to their particular company. So it's more of, the, more of a passive acceptance rather than an active public support for such legislation.
1: So let's move on to trade wars. Given the current state of inflation, what do you see going forward in terms of trade wars and also the Biden administration's perspective
2: on trade with China? Wow, great question. So my rule of thumb for the Biden administration is it's it's much more free trade than the Trump administration ever was. Part of it is ideological. Part of it's transactional to an extent. I think Joe Biden's an old school Democrat, and he's okay with making bargains with, with other countries if he thinks it's in his political interest. You know, his party is much more in favor of free trade. The base of the Democratic Party, much more in favor of free trade than it has been in about a generation or so. So it will have more of a free trade approach than President Trump did. That said, I don't think Joe Biden is going to go back to that kind of 24-year bipartisan era under President Obama and President Bush and President Clinton, where, where the United States basically bent over backwards to accommodate China's trade needs and got them into the the global trading system with GATT, and things like that. I think Joe Biden will probably not ramp up tariffs and quotas on on China like President Trump did, but I don't think he's going to ratchet them back in any significant way either. Now, I could end up with egg on my face over the next couple of weeks, because as we speak, the Biden administration is considering ratcheting back a little bit on the Trump tariffs on China in order to deal with inflation. I think in the end, if they choose that route... They're not going to repeal all of Trump's tariffs, not even close. I think they would just limit it to some of them. It would be more of a PR operation more than anything else.
3: That's really interesting. The China thing, we're going to talk – well, we have some more questions for you coming up on energy. But as a segue into energy, given where we see oil and everything right now, price of gasoline, do you see China as a potential growth leader In the global economy for the second half of 2020, as COVID restrictions are being lifted, and this is me now saying the possibility that they may pay less for oil and gas in the future if it's coming from Russia, given the fact that the rest of the world could end up boycotting Russia. So Russia oil has to go somewhere, and if China is not participating in the boycott and wants to buy it, you've got a supply and demand imbalance a little bit. And maybe they're going to
2: be able to get oil cheaper than the rest of the world, and that could fuel their growth. Yeah, it's a great question, David. I you know, I'm not going to hold myself out as a, an expert on China's economy on a month-to-month or quarter-to-quarter basis. I certainly think they're going to see a rebound in economic growth now that you have some cities getting past what for China was kind of a COVID disaster. However, I think, you know, my personal view on, on COVID is that in many cases, and I'm not saying certain policies are right or certain policies are wrong, in many cases Cases of COVID prevented are really cases of COVID postponed. So I would not be surprised if China has more of a problem than many other advanced economies around the world where COVID pops up and they have to clamp down on it suddenly again, like they did with Shanghai earlier this year. That said, the chances are they're going to grow faster for the remainder of this year on average than they have so far this year. And yes, getting oil more cheaply from Russia because they're one of the few countries. to openly purchase it might help them at the margin slightly. However, you have to remember, you have to weigh against that. And I have to be a two-handed economist here, but this is one of the few areas where where I really need to, to do that, which is that oil prices are higher globally because of many of the policies that those opposed to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine are conducting. And because of that, even if they can get Russian oil more cheaply, their average price of imported oil might not go down very much, if at all. They might still see a higher average price, and that'll be a headwind for growth in China because they're such a large importer of fossil fuels. Staying on the energy topic here, it's as I say before,
3: it's you know it's impossible to turn off the television and avoid any sort of conversation or or debate over the price of oil and gas. I mean, unless you're watching The Real Housewives on Bravo. Do you have an outlook or any opinions on green energy regulations or any other component of our current energy policy?
2: Wow, great question. I would basically put a lot of the regulations coming from the Biden administration to two different buckets right now. You know, bucket number one includes things that the Biden administration is doing that the Republicans have zero power to stop. So an example of that would be raising the automobile mileage fleet standards for US cars and trucks. It's happening. Republicans have zero power to stop it. They just have to accept it. Okay. Bucket number two are changes the Biden administration has and will continue to make that, for example, make it tougher for utilities to burn fossil fuels to generate electricity and also increasing costs or regulation on drilling and extracting fossil fuels across the entire United States, not just on federal land, across the entire United States. In that second bucket, though, are many policies, many regulations coming from the Biden administration that I think will ultimately be struck down by the Supreme Court? I think the Supreme Court has now a majority to overturn something called the Chevron decision from the mid 1980s. Obviously, recent news indicates that the court will be more aggressive about turning over all sorts of precedents from previous decades. So, the Chevron decision from the mid 1980s, I think it came down in 1984 basically said, and, and if there are lawyers out there, I get it. I'm oversimplifying, but this is a podcast by an economist. so
3: <laughs> Yeah, thank you for keeping it down at <laughs> yes. the uh,
2: understandable <laughs> level. We, everybody appreciates that, Bob. Yeah, basically, the Chevron decision from 1984 basically said that their federal regulators come out with new rules, that the courts are going to have a light touch, not strictly scrutinize them, basically assume that the regulators knew what they were doing. Okay, I know that's oversimplification for some lawyers out there, But that's basically what they said. In terms of overturning that decision, that would allow courts in the future to apply a much, much stricter level of scrutiny to all new federal rules. So, for example, federal rules would have to, federal rule makers, if challenged in court, would have to show specifically where Congress passed a law to give those particular regulators the authority to issue the particular rule that they've enacted. That would be a much tougher level of scrutiny. And many of the rules we've seen coming from the Biden administration in the environmental area would be struck down. We saw a hint of what might happen back in the, I think, January of this year when the Supreme Court overturned the COVID-related OSHA rules for private employers on testing and requiring vaccination for their employees. They said that it exceeded OSHA's statutory mandate. That phrase is going to be heard over and over again over the next decade exceeding the statutory mandate. We saw that again a month or so ago when a district court in Florida overturned mask rules on public transportation coming from the Center for Disease Control, CDC. They're saying that it exceeded the statutory mandate. Again, we're going to hear that phrase over and over again over the next decade or so.
3: That's interesting. Is there a timeline? Okay, because when you say the Supreme Court may decide, in my mind, just being a casual observer of the Supreme Court, I immediately think, well, that could take years, decades. What is the timeline on some of those decisions that would make you know overturning these federal rules a real a real probability?
2: My best guess is it happens this summer. There was a case that was heard at the Supreme Court level several months ago, and it could you know it could happen frankly, next week, for all we know or, or the the week after, whenever the decision comes down, they don't schedule specific rulings in specific cases on particular days. So so we don't know when it's going to come out. I think the issue would probably be addressed by the court in a case that was heard where arguments were heard earlier this year. And so we may get it later this year. perhaps not. if we don't, I think the anti-regulators might win that case, but with a less sweeping ruling. And then the court may hear a case that requires a more sweeping ruling sometime over the next year or two. Wow,
3: that's, that's a lot faster than I thought you were going to say. So. <laughs> Stay tuned.
1: One more question on energy. So it sounds like Both sides of the aisle are currently blaming each other for the current energy situation. There's a lot of, you know, pointing fingers in the opposite direction. So can you shed some light on whether or not any of the political talking points are valid? And if some are valid, you know, which ones are valid or if it's all just rhetoric?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I do not spend a lot of time listening to political arguments. (laughs) You know, when I go through the I know the Republicans have been saying over and over again that, you know, Basically, you know, that the the Biden administration's efforts to slow down the process of drilling and extracting fossil fuels on federal land is at the heart of the increase in prices we've seen since the Biden administration took office. And they're entitled to say it. You know, they're politicians. Politicians make political arguments. So they're entitled to say it. And they basically say, well, here's where the oil price was on January 20th of 2021 when Biden took office. Here's where it is today. So you know, since then... He's implemented certain policies, so they make a, back at Georgetown, we used to call a post hoc ergo propter hoc argument, which is, you know, after which, therefore, it must be because of which. Biden administration changed the policy, the prices are up, therefore, it must be that particular policy, okay? They're entitled to make that argument. I It doesn't really fly with me. I think if the Biden administration had not changed that policy very much or at all, we'd still be sitting Probably within a dollar or two of where we are today, and um, the Republicans would just have to come up with a different argument instead. That doesn't mean that the Biden administration policy on federal lands or at least the one he had a couple of months ago wouldn't restrain oil production out into the future, but it really doesn't do much in the short term. We have a global market for fossil fuels. If you look at the fossil fuel exploration budgets from major drillers and extractors around the, around the world, they're low relative to where the price of oil is in the United States, not just on federal land, but across the entire United States. The amount of money they're willing to put into drilling anywhere in the world is lower than you would normally expect, even where prices are today. And I think that really has to do with regulatory ambiguity in the future about carbon. And it really doesn't have anything to do with something particular that's been enacted over the past you know, 18 months.
3: Interesting. So one of the things that I see all the time
2: when anybody
3: who is coming out against the current administration, the thing I see on the TV all the time is they'll point to a chart of the price of oil or gas and point to the fact that look at how it was really low the day Biden took over as the president and look at where it is now. And I think people just visually extrapolate, okay, this is an issue with the current administration. Can you counter that point for listeners who see that graph all the time? Because to me, as somebody who casually pays attention to the things, I look at that and I say, well, that makes sense. Those things look mutually inclusive of each other. Why would that not be the case? And can you educate listeners as to why that could just be political rhetoric and talking points having to do with timing?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of bashing of the Biden administration for slowing down the process for drilling and extracting fossil fuels on federal land, as we discussed earlier. So the Trump administration was giving away these leases like they were going out of style in 2019 and 2020. Okay, So the drillers and extractors really have, have more than enough leases than they know what to do with right now. If leases were the problem, we would actually see a huge ramping up of drilling and extracting off of federal land. We'd see big investment budgets from Shell, ExxonMobil, et cetera, off of federal land. We'd see them higher abroad, significantly higher than they would normally be because prices are much higher. But we're not seeing that. So if the problem is really the policies the Biden administration is enacting on, on federal land, we haven't seen the oil companies react to that in the way we would expect to see. So the likelihood of those policies on federal land being the key factor behind or even a substantial factor behind the increase in energy prices so far is very doubtful in my mind. Now, that said, if the Biden administration's policies of clamping down on these leases and permits on federal land is maintained for multiple years, that will be a significant problem in the future for energy prices. So far, not so much. So, the leases are out there and people can start drilling, or use, they're just not doing it. They're not doing it as much as they otherwise could. But really, the key is to look at what they're doing off of federal land and where the Biden administration policies are not as much of an impediment. And if the problem were what's going on on federal land, you would see a huge increase in activity off of federal land. We don't.
3: So, if we shift out of energy, I'd like to talk about banks for a second because. There's been about 4 – I'm rounding here because it's easy to round when you're talking about trillions of dollars, right? $4 trillion recently pumped into banks by the government over the past couple of years. What do you think the outlook is for banks' earnings over the next few years? If they're essentially paying zero interest to the government for, those, for that $4 trillion that got pumped into their balance sheets, but they all of a sudden start lending that cash out to borrowers at higher interest rates as the cost of borrow goes
2: up. Well, it's really interesting because you know, you see these roughly four trillion dollars in excess reserves sitting on the on bank balance sheets. They're getting paid an increasing amount of interest by the Fed to do nothing. So that's a great position to be in. I mean, imagine if we're sitting the middle of twenty twenty-three and they still have two and a half trillion, let's say, in excess reserves in the banking system and they're being paid. 4% on them. And I'm not saying we're going to 4%, but yeah, that's reasonable. The banks are going to be collecting $100 billion a year. $100 billion a year for doing nothing. And I think that's it's kind of like a combustible political situation. I mean, do you want to be a senator or a house member going back to your district or state, explaining to your constituents at some sort of community meeting why the Federal Reserve is paying the biggest banks in the United States $100 billion a year to do nothing? I think that's a tough conversation to have with taxpayers and voters. So I think bank earnings are going to look decent relative to the economic environment. Now, that's a really important thing to be relative to, because I expect real GDP growth this year to be in the vicinity of one and a half percent or so, which is much slower than it was last year. I expect continued economic growth in 2023. I think the recession risk rises. A lot of people think there'll be a recession this year. I don't think so. Okay. Jamie Dimon may be talking about hurricanes, but they are far, far out from shore right now. Okay. Now, I think once we get into 2024, the risk of recession gets to the cumulative probability of 50%. So they'll be paid a lot of money by the Fed, at least for the time being, because they have lots of reserves in their system and the Fed has raised short-term rates. But Meanwhile, the economic situation generally in the country won't be as good. So there's going to be A battle between that tailwind from reserve payments from the Fed and the headwind to slow economic growth. So I wouldn't describe myself as bullish or bearish on banks right now. It's gonna be a matter of those two factors working out.
3: That's really interesting. I'm personally interested in it because I really haven't seen a whole lot of news or any sort of raising the alarm bells on this, let's just say $2.5 to $4 trillion sitting on the balance sheet and the banks kind of earning hundred billion billion a year for doing nothing. That doesn't seem to be in the mainstream media at all. As a matter of fact, I don't even see it in some of the more micro research stuff that we read. So nobody's really talking about this. At what point do people start talking about that? Will it be an election season issue or or will it just kind of always stay quiet and everybody just kind of says like, hey, we need to start fixing this? What happens
2: there? I think that's more of a 2023 issue, frankly, because it's going to take a while to get those interest payments up and there's a lag in how the Treasury Department reports them and Et cetera, et cetera. And there are other things going on. I mean, if you're paying more at the pump, you're paying more at the grocery store as a voter, you're more concerned about those up front. Once that becomes something that's not a new concern, but an ongoing concern, then you can shift mentally to something else. And I think this issue with how much the Fed will be paying these banks, it's more of a 2023 issue. I don't think it's going to be a big issue for the congressional races. It might for the presidential race.
3: So Jessica's got some questions that she wants to ask you on taxes. And then from there, we're going to get into some questions on, well, we're going to ask you to make a few predictions. So this will be the last opportunity I have to ask you about recession to stay on that topic for one second and segue a little bit. You mentioned before that you may end up with egg on your face. Okay, here's the thing. I may end up with everything splattered all over my face for the position that I've recently taken in some blogs. And for listeners, match up the publication date of this podcast with some writings that we've done in the past on our website back a few weeks. And I've been taking the position of, hey, I can guarantee you that a recession is coming. I just can't say when. But what I, I don't think people are, should be really focused on is the recession that everybody's talking about. And, and I've been making some points that It's more about the probability of a recession happening, which I agree with you, I think is right now, today, low, even though we just had our first quarter, negative quarter print of GDP. So some people can say, well, we're halfway across the ocean on this. So I've been saying that recession probability is really low. I was wondering if you could just take a few more minutes and maybe expand on your opinion as to why you see if there's a recession, it's probably not now, nor would it be this year. In other words, make me look good in my prediction, please, on my blog. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, really exactly. what I'm asking for here, Bob.
2: Oh, I get it, David. I get it. I, I <laughs> know what Help I'm here for. Help me out here. <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm Everybody's here
3: Everybody's against me on this right now.
2: Yeah. So again, yeah, recession coming. The probability of this year is very, very low. And here's the reason. They're, interest rates are still very low. Monetary policy is not tight. And I think it needs to be tight in order to induce a recession. I mean, assuming, assuming we don't have some sort of huge step up in COVID like we did in 2020, I think you need to see some tight monetary policy. The banks are still well capitalized. So that's not going to be a problem. You're not going to see a 2008, 2009 style disaster like we saw after Lehman Brothers. So tight money is going to eventually cause a recession because the Fed has to get tight to to bring inflation down from what's likely to be an eight and a half percent print sometime over the next week or so. And then you know, a year ago comparison basis and then and bring it down to more like two, two and a half percent like it wants. So but tight money has a very lag relationship with economic growth. So let's put it this way. Monetary policy is not going to be tight until at least late this year. At least. OK, then it takes another year for it to hit the economy. So now we're at the end, the very end of 2023. So. That's why I think the cumulative probability of a recession only hits 50% sometime around the spring of 2024. So we're a ways away. What I'm concerned about, David, is that what's going to happen is that all the people who think there's going to be a recession this calendar year create a wall of worry for markets to rally later this year as they realize there is no recession this year, and probably not early next year either. And then we hit a new high in the equity market. And if we do that, that might be a good departure (laughs) point from equities because uh, then the recession really would be a year to a year and a half away, you know, late this year, very early next year. And that might be a point where you strongly want to consider selling. So this has
1: been all extremely interesting, but I want to move on to everyone's favorite topic, which is taxes. Don't necessarily have a question here, but I'd just love to get your thoughts on a lot of the potential changes that in particular were, were floating around the ether last year, kind of will they, won't they, meant to ultimately happen. So kind of give us a rundown of, of some of the popular tax topics and what you think might happen there.
2: Great question, Jessica. So the first thing I need to say is that there's about a 65% chance, in my opinion, that Build Back Better does not happen. At least nothing in the sense that it requires any tax hike whatsoever. So, and nothing large enough to require a tax hike. So, 65% chance, none of this happens. Okay. If the Democrats, however, are lucky enough to get a bill to the president's desk that raises taxes, again, chances are they won't, but if they did... I don't think there's any way they'd make the top federal tax rate 45%. That's just ridiculous. It's just not going to happen. Okay, So the highest they would ever go, I think, at least in the Biden administration, is 396 which is exactly where it was for eight years under Bill Clinton, four years, last four years under President Obama, and for the first year under President Trump, during which 13 years, we had a bull market in stocks and not one single recession the entire time. So if we go to 39.6% we have a recession, It ain't because 39.6%, it's it's other reasons, like tight monetary policy. On the corporate rate, I think we probably stay at 21%. There's an off chance we might go as high as 25%. Frankly, I see that as a glass half full, or should be seen as a glass half full for the equity markets. I mean, if you had asked me two, three years ago, what's going to happen if the Democrats swept, controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House, I would have assumed we'd go to at least 28%. So if the Democrats accept 25% or below... That's actually sweet for the equity markets. In terms of capital gains and dividends, if the Democrats are lucky enough to raise those rates, the highest they're going to go, including the Medicare tax, would be 28%. Right now, they're 24% essentially, all in for long term capital gains and dividends. The highest they go is 28%. And the reason I say 28% is because that was the tax rate for the highest earners in the United States on capital gains and dividends. In January 1989, when Mr. Tax cut himself, Ronald Reagan left office and rode into the political sunset, optics matter in politics, appearances matter, it would give the Democrats a chance to turn to the Republicans who would be vocally complaining, crying bloody murder if the Democrats touch the capital gains and dividends tax rates, like like it's going to cause a Great Depression if they move it 0.1 percentage points. They could turn to the Republicans and say, listen... All we're doing is restoring the Reagan tax rate from 1989. If it was good enough for your hero, Ronald Reagan, why isn't it good enough for us today? And the Republicans would kind of look ridiculous. So I think in the end, the highest the Democrats would go is 28%. In terms of the cap, the state and local tax deduction, it's 10,000 now. I don't see the political coalition that's going to get a bill to the president's desk and move it any higher than, say, 20 or 25,000. So it might go up a little bit, but not go up to nearly as unlimited as it used to be. Some other changes, Democrats talked about getting rid of the stuff on basis of death. Not going to happen. Okay, that would be an administrative nightmare. Many people have no idea what their parents or grandparents originally paid for an asset. That's not going to happen. What they might do instead, what makes more sense to me, having watched the legislative process, having been on the Hill for seven years, and a Budget Committee time, is maybe do something that's administratively easier, which is just reduce the estate tax exemption. This year it's about 12 million million per person. It was five and a half million pre-Trump. Now they could reduce it to say seven or eight million. It would still be higher than it was pre-Trump, but not quite as high as it is today. You get to raise a little revenue from upscale people without triggering an administrative nightmare that might be triggered if you get rid of the step up basis of death. Step up basis of death, it's been the law of the land for, in the United States for a hundred years. It's not going away anytime soon. It's just very difficult administratively.
1: Okay, and that includes, I, I would assume, part making death a capital gains event. You know, declaring event like that wouldn't happen as well. You think? As well. I don't think that's going to yeah. happen. No, okay. I, I don't see that. So, what's what's the probability of of some of these changes, like specifically you pointed to the estate tax change, happening
2: at any point before twenty twenty four? Well, here's the deal: if it doesn't happen this year, it ain't going to happen. Period. Okay. This is it. This is the Democrats' last stand because. They're going to lose, in my opinion, they're going to lose the House and Senate this November, or at least one of them, but very likely both of them, okay? In which case, every bill that goes to the president's desk starting next year will have to be bipartisan, Well, the Democrats are going to find that the Republicans will not agree to any tax hike. So we're not going to see any tax hikes if they don't get enacted this year. That's it. Deadline's end of year.
3: So we're we're very tactical with this podcast, Bob. We sit down and we really script out how this whole thing has to go. This is why we don't have you do the predictions in the beginning because everybody will just turn it off. So here we are. It's <laughs> prediction time. You kind of just gave one. Everyone wants to know with, you know, 435 House seats and 34 Senate seats up for election, based on what you just said, who will win the House race and why is that answer the Republicans?
2: Okay. So, so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I've rarely been this confident about anything, but I think there's at least a 95% chance that the Republicans are going to take the House this fall. The Republicans are already, they won 212 House seats two years ago, back in 2020. Okay. They're almost certainly going to do better than they did two years ago. The party that does not control the White House normally does very well in midterm election cycles, not always, but usually. And that's this time the Republicans, you know, it was the Democrats back in 2018. They picked up a lot of seats in the House of Representatives and the Republicans back in 2010, 2014 as well. So then you look at the Joe Biden's approval rating. He needs to be somewhere in the vicinity of 50 percent for the Democrats to have any shot at keeping the House. He's languishing at 41, nowhere close to where he needs to be. And then I look at the election returns in my home state of Virginia and the state where I was born and raised, New Jersey. And consistently, the Republicans ran well ahead of where they normally should have been state by state, state legislative district by state legislative districts. And so that's a recipe for a Republican. Yeah, Republicans easily take in the House. My best guess is they'll pick up roughly 30 seats and get to 242, which is in the vicinity of where they were in 2010 after President Obama's first midterm cycle. In terms of the U.S. Senate, you know, right now it's 50-50. I think the Republicans have about an 85% chance of taking the Senate. Okay, not 95% plus like the House, but about 85% chance. So, so why the difference? Well, in the House, you have 435 members. All those seats are up for grabs every two years. In the Senate, you have 100 members, but they get six-year terms each. There are only, as you said, 34 Senate races this year. And among those 34, this is the key fact, among those 34 races, 20 of those seats are already occupied by a Republican. You just can't gain a seat when you already have the seat. So there are only 14 seats that the Democrats have to defend. And so that simply gives the Republicans fewer seats to shoot at to try to get a majority. OK, so I think the races come down this way. You know, the, there are three seats that are occupied by the Republicans that are reasonably vulnerable, Wisconsin, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. But they have an incumbent running for reelection in Wisconsin. And North Carolina is still a tilting red state. I even went for Trump two years ago. And I really think the only plausible pickup is in the state of Pennsylvania for the Democrats. And even that's, at best, 50%. But the Republicans have lots of opportunities. They may squander them. They have a habit of picking <laughs> uh, what I would describe as suboptimal candidates for their states. It's something I call the Christine O'Donnell effect from back in from 2000. From Delaware. Down in Delaware. Right? Was yeah. yeah. They had a layup opportunity with Mike Castle. And they missed the bucket <laughs> because they nominated somebody who is essentially a political novice and who's never been heard from since. So, you know, she lost by 17 percentage points, a state they easily could have won. So what's going to happen this year? Well, they have pickup opportunities in Georgia, but they're running Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is a hero. it's like a god in the state of Georgia. But recent clips suggest he may have been hit a few more, a few too many times in some of those tackles he took, both at Georgia and in the pros. Then you have the state of Arizona. Republicans have a decent opportunity there, as well as in Nevada, especially considering that Hispanic voters seem to be moving away from the Democratic Party and toward the Republican Party. And then you have a couple of other pickup opportunities. So far, they look squandered, but we'll see. New Hampshire would have been a, not a layup, but a really close, easy shot if Governor Sununu, a Republican, had decided to run. He backed out. He decided not to run. I guess backing out is the wrong phrase, but he just decided not to run. And so now the New Hampshire Republicans will run what I call, again, a suboptimal candidate. So they probably won't win that state. I think net-net, um, they could. They could also re- win in Colorado, but they ended up, a couple of really good candidates ended up screwing up the process of getting enough signatures to guarantee they'd be on the ballot. They also have potentially a good candidate in the state of Washington, but Washington's I think a bridge too far, unless there's a tsunami their way. My best guess is in the end, the Republicans, because of the tide running their way, will end up winning 53 seats. I wouldn't be shocked if they won 52. I would not be shocked if they won 54. But those are the most likely results.
3: Interesting. Just real quick, because you mentioned the state of New Jersey, any insight or thoughts on, and I I have to expose a bias here. I grew up with Tom Kane Jr., who is the son of the very popular former governor in New Jersey, Tom Kane Sr., and he just recently won the primary for New Jersey 7th.
2: I was wondering if you follow that
3: race at all because of your roots to New Jersey.
2: Unfortunately, no, I do not. So wait, wait who's he, who's he going to run against?
3: I don't know. I just saw the news clip that the chamber had endorsed him. So I was excited about that. So I, this this is my political contribution is, is mentioning my support for him on the podcast. But uh, <laughs> that's go. only because he's he, he's a friend. I really don't have a stake in the
2: race. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and when, when Tom Kane was governor for a while. And I remember Brendan Byrne from back in the day. And and yeah, you know, New Jersey has some interesting politics, but it's really tough for a Republican to win in New Jersey unless times get really tough there. Now that's a congressional race and I'm talking statewide. It is very tough for a Republican to win.
3: Yeah. Other than them running, you know, suboptimal candidates, the Republicans, are there any other big risks out there that could encumber their bid for control?
2: That's a great question. I you know, God forbid there's some sort of terrorist event in the United States that could create a rally around the flag effect for Joe Biden. I, I think our intelligence and military services, Department of Homeland Security have done a pretty darn good job of protecting us against foreign terrorism, at least. So, you know, that's unlikely to happen. You know, hopefully it does not. But I think that's something that it's always a wild card and it could. But, you know, I have no peculiar ability to predict those. Any American can predict those at least as well as I can. So,
1: I've got to ask the question. Any thoughts or guesses on whether Biden is running again in 2024?
2: Wow, that's a terrific one, Jessica. So, here's my view I think there's only about a 35% chance he runs for office again. I would not be shocked if he did, but I, I lean in the direction that he will not run for office. Now, that doesn't mean he won't claim he will, okay? Because, of course, he's going to claim he will up until the moment he decides against it. But, you know, I just see the things with like, like he has a, he has a meeting with Treasury Secretary Yellen and, and Fed Chief Powell, and he's sitting there uttering the same darn talking points he's probably talked about for decades when he was on the Senate, and that I've seen so many other presidents talk about it, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, who could easily talk about and memorize these simple, simple things to say, and he's sitting there reading them off a cue card. I mean, I remember working on the Hill and we'd prepare those cue cards for your senator. Every office does it. And they'd, they'd look at it here and there and then they'd put it in their pocket and just like do their thing. And he doesn't really seem able to do that. I just think cognitively he is where President Reagan was late in his second term, late in his second term. And, you know, had he been constitutionally allowed, I don't think Reagan would have run again. And I don't see Joe Biden running, given his current... What I perceive as his health status today, like, I, I'm i not saying he's not qualified to be president. That's up to the people to decide. But I, you know, I've had parents who've passed away over the past several years and everybody hits a wall at a different time, different people at different ages. I mean, Bernie Sanders is older than Joe Biden, but. You don't see the cognitive problems with Bernie Sanders. Maybe see other issues. Okay, <laughs> Donald Trump is almost as old as Joe Biden. You see some issues, but you don't see you know the same issue that Joe Biden has. So, I think in the end he probably decides not to run. So,
1: and then in that case, I mean, any thoughts or guesses on who is running then?
2: Okay. That's a really good question. So I'll I'll try to keep... (laughs) The the last one, the one that we saved to the end. Yeah, I'll try to keep this short. So here's the deal. Normally, you would think if the president, sitting president doesn't run, that the vice president would be the natural heir. And a year ago, that's what I would have told you. But I don't think that would happen for Kamala Harris. I I think she only has... I think she would run if Joe Biden does not. But I think she would only have about a 10% chance of getting that nomination. Here's the key. You do not have to be a rocket scientist. To be president of the United States. Okay. Ronald Reagan, not a rocket scientist. George Bush the Younger, not a rocket scientist. Okay. Donald Trump, not. And Joe Biden, not either. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be president. But if you're not so, a rocket scientist. So you're saying I have a chance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're
2: saying. Exactly, David. <laughs> right. as, as do I. Just I just don't have the money for it. Right. As do I. But if you're not a rocket scientist, you have to be perceptive. Ronald Reagan was highly perceptive. That's why he was so funny. George Bush the Younger was highly perceptive at a personal level. Donald Trump, perceptive. I mean, if you're going to be a sociopath, you got to be perceptive, right? It's part of the job description, okay? Then there's Joe Biden. He might not be perceptive now, but at least he used to be. Kamala Harris is neither a rocket scientist nor highly perceptive. Simple as that. Because of that, she would have multiple challengers from both inside politics and maybe even outside. And I think in the end, she would be unlikely to get that nomination. So here are the people I would watch the most. Bernie Sanders. If Joe Biden doesn't run, actually, it's higher than that if he doesn't run, I think Bernie Sanders has about a 25% chance of being the Democrats nominee. Now, people tell me, Bob, how is that possible? He's so old. The guy was too old in 2016 and he almost beat Hillary Clinton. The guy was too old in 2020 Okay, and the Democrats had to have a coordinated departure of all the other major candidates endorsing Biden just to stop him. Okay, so yeah, he's too old in 2024, but he was too old twice before and he did fine. So he'll be sitting there scowling in the corner, okay, like he normally does, sitting on his lawn chair and getting 30, 35 percent of the vote in every state minimum, just because he's Bernie. Okay, and there are Bernie voters in the Democratic Party who will walk over vote broken glass just to vote for Bernie. Okay. Every time. And this time it would be tougher, I think, for the Democrats to have a coordinated departure of other candidates and endorsing one single candidate, kind of like they had with Biden last time, because there are multiple candidates who all would say, I want to be Joe this time. I mean, Kamala Harris would certainly say that and a number of others would as well. So I think in the end, he's got a legitimate shot of being the nominee. A couple of other names. If Joe Biden doesn't run and Michelle Obama did run, she would win at a cakewalk. They would roll out the red carpet and she would take it. But I think in the end, she doesn't have the fire in the belly. You really have to want to be president. Okay, You have to have something. Frankly, David, this is another reason why you can't run. Okay, You have to be emotionally troubled at some deep level to really want to be president of the United States that bad. Okay, Jessica, be- do not say a word. <laughs> <laughs> Zip it. Okay, got it. Exactly. (laughs) Do not argue with him. (laughs) Yeah, so you really have to be deeply troubled and have certain emotional issues in order to be willing to go through what you need to go through. And I don't think she has those troubles. (laughs) I think she's, you know, I'm not saying I agree with her or disagree with her on like political issues or as a person, like whether I like her or not, but I I don't think she's a a deeply emotionally scarred person (laughs) who needs that affirmation. So I don't think she runs. Another name that might throw his hat in the ring if Biden doesn't run is Mark Cuban, the billionaire entrepreneur, owner of the Dallas Mavericks. I think he covets the presidency and will run eventually. Maybe not this time, but may have, maybe eventually. And you know, the, the name that I always think is kind of funny, but you can't not take him seriously given the history with Donald Trump is Howard Stern, Okay, the, the shock jock. I mean, how much would you pay David and Jessica? I think David would probably pay more to watch a general election debate between Howard Stern and Donald Trump, I mean, if the pay-per-view set the price at a thousand bucks, my household's in. So, <laughs> so throw Joe Rogan in, and you can make it two thousand bucks. <laughs> oh, I want to see. I want to see Stuttering John be the moderator. Okay. <laughs> now here's the key: I don't want my kids to watch it. Okay. Right. right. But I would pay a lot of money to watch it. I, I'm just, I'm kind of kidding around, but not hundred percent kidding. So that's the way I see the Democrats. I think Biden has a thirty-five percent chance of being the nominee. If he runs, he gets it. Bernie Sanders, 25%. Vice President Harris, 10%. That comes out to, what, 50%, 60 70%. And then the, the other 30% is scattered among all those other possibilities.
1: And then on the Republican side, is it, is it Trump running again?
2: Well, here's the way I would put it, Jessica. I think President Trump has a 70% chance of running. If he runs, a 70% chance of getting the nomination. So, you know, net, net 50% chance of being the Republican nominee. I think Ron DeSantis would be the front runner almost certainly if President Trump doesn't run and he has maybe a 25 to 30% chance of getting the nomination. Republicans tend to either like the big celebrity or the front runner. <laughs> the Republicans are very simple people, okay? So what's left? Well, you know, about 20 to 25 percentage points of possibility. I'm not going to go through all the candidates because there're like a billion of them on the Republican side all thinking this is their time, okay? But I'm going to go through the one candidate I think is a dark horse who hasn't gotten enough notice yet, but who will. And that's Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State. The guy's lost about 100 pounds in the past year. 100 pounds, like, well, maybe 90. Yeah, close Close enough. Okay, I give him credit for 100 if he's done 90. He's tan, rested, and ready. He graduated first in his class at West Point. He's not only very intelligent, but he's quick verbally on his feet. I think he would perform very well in debate. And because of that, he's a dangerous candidate. If any of them gets nominated, Pompeo, DeSantis, Trump, I think in the end, they would probably pick Nikki Haley as a running mate. I think that would be a very formidable ticket for the Republicans to put forward.
3: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for those predictions. We'll have to wrap up there and, and ask you. We are gonna to have to presumptively assume that you will come back on after the twenty twenty two elections are over and give us your your outlook for the economy and any changes after there is some some more visibility on what happens with those House and Senate races. But this has been very enlightening and thank you so much for your time in your opinion on all of those issues that we talked about the tech the banking the taxes energy that was all fascinating and the predictions of course are always fun but really enjoyed having you on today and would love to have you back on in the future and you know with that Jessica let's let's go ahead and wrap up this this episode of off the wall just want to remind everybody that that's a huge help if you go and rate the podcast and give us some five stars if you think it's worthy and And be sure to check out our website and read some of our blogs. And, of course, check out some of the commentary that comes out on the First Trust website. They put out some great economic research, and I find all of their folks on that economics team incredibly fascinating and very astute. So go make sure you check them out as well. And for any advisors who are listening, make sure you're checking out the stuff that's coming out of their wholesale teams. They really publish some great stuff, and they really have a leading foot forward. So, with that, thank you so much again, Bob, for your time and, and energy on the podcast today.
2: My pleasure.
0: The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.